So we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 and 13. I count it as a great joy to be shared today with, with, with uh, by Mark Thompson and by Neil Foster, two great friends of mine and ours and yours, uh, and who will be giving us terrific meat. What I'm going to do in the first study is uh, do really just a Bible study on Romans 12 and 13. It's not even a sermon, it's a Bible study. We're going to work through these two chapters which lay the foundation, I hope, for the matters that Mark and Neil will bring to us and that I will bring on the last session this afternoon. So Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You'll find the outline of the talk is on page 5 of our books. Romans 12 starts with the word, therefore, pointing us back to the previous arguments of the letter. As it reaches its conclusion, the letter reaches its conclusion and application. Paul in chapters 1 to 11 has spelt out the mercies of God. He's even concluded the section discussing God's mercies to the Jews and to the Gentiles. God's mercies are so deep, so unfathomable that nobody would ever imagined his plan to save the world through the Jews. And we who are Christians in any and every age are Christians only because of the mercy of God. It is his extraordinary forgiveness and grace that sent his son to die on the cross for us, that brings the gospel to us, that by the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see and understand and that gives us repentance and trust to respond. So on the basis of these mercies, Paul appeals to the Christians to live Christianly. And that involves the great transformation of verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Uh, the Greek word that lies behind that transformed is comes to us in English as metamorphosis. It, it's, the, it's the idea of being changed, being profoundly, completely changed, transformed. And part of that transformation is to move from individualism to something quite different. For our world, our society is all about individualism. And yet as Christians transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to be about individualism. Now it's only natural, and in Bible terms therefore sinful, it's only natural that one of the chief interests of people is the self. As seen at the basic level, most people remember their own contributions to conversations and discussions. After an evening of discussion, ask them what the conversation was about and they'll tell you what they said. Most people can talk about themselves for hours, non-stop. But there are deeper levels of this issue of self. Many people in our society enjoy self-improvement, self-analysis courses. Pop psychology makes a fortune out of our own self-absorption. And deeper still, 
Most people, having rejected God, seek their meaning and purpose in life within themselves. So the issue of self-awareness, emotions, self-consciousness are so much of the big issues of philosophy and psychology today. The world we inhabit in Western commercial urban society is the world of individualism. Nobody is to tell me how to live. Nobody is to be my master. The concept of shame is no longer coercive. It no longer works as a coercive force or a punishment of behavior. I am not ashamed of being myself. In fact, we even have TV shows entitled Shameless. I've never seen them. The very title was enough to turn me off. But yet the fact that you could see shamelessness as a positive is unimaginable in previous societies. In I live in self-selecting communities as a city dweller. Self-selecting communities to whom I have very few obligations and very little commitment. I, like all members of our society living in home units, make sure that we never meet our neighbours except in the parking lot for the briefest of conversations. We live too close to each other to actually know each other, let alone care for each other, let alone have anything to do with each other. Body corporate meetings are themselves so terrifying. Who wishes to know any more about your neighbour than what you see in a body corporate meeting? But the appeal of Romans 12 is to live differently. It's not to let the world mould you, but to be transformed. And notice how you're to be transformed. It's by the renewal of your mind. John Stott wrote a great little book that is well worth reading, but even if you never read it, remember the title, because the title says it all, Your Mind Matters. I mean, I'm speaking to the converted here. Here is a lovely day out in the Sydney weather, lovely summer's day and a public holiday, and you are gathering here in this gathering in order to improve your mind to be renewed by the word of God in your mind. So I'm speaking to the converted, so to speak. But the renewal of your mind is one of the themes of the New Testament that we find so underestimated in Christian circles today. We have come as Christians to accept the world's estimate of the importance of experience, of feelings and emotions over the mind. We've accepted the world's estimate of religion as being paranormal experiences, superstition, dumb rituals, irrational faith, spirituality, but nothing to do with the mind. And so we're surprised when we actually look at Paul's prayers, for example, to see that they're all about growing in knowledge and understanding. And we're we're surprised that we respond to the gospel with understanding or that renewal, transformation, will come from renewal of the mind. Indeed, many Bible-believing churches are accused of being too cerebral. But we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our mind. You can't be too cerebral. That's not. But you can be not sufficiently obedient, but you can't be too cerebral. That's a different thing. 
And notice the consequence of this renewal of the mind. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's so important if we're to serve God that we discern the will of God, that we understand what he wants, not what we think he wants, not what we want him to want, Not what we want to give him, but what he wants. What is his will? So that we may give him what he wants. This doesn't come from ignorance or from feelings, but from the heart that is desperate to please him and the mind that knows what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I've illustrated it many, many times before, but seeing people have kept quoting it back to me, it obviously works, therefore I'll give it to you again. If at morning tea you decide out of some strange, gracious love that you want to serve me by getting me a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, you need to understand, you need to know what I like. For when you arrive and place in my hand a cup of milky coffee with two sugars... You have made my life very difficult. I don't like milky coffee. I like black coffee and I can't stand it with sugar. But because you've been kind and nice to me, I am forced to drink it in front of you, desperately choking on it as it goes down, but smiling the whole time. I wish you knew what your heart desired to do. I want to serve God, I must understand God, I must know God, I must, in my mind, know what is his will, his desire. I don't want you to serve me tea or coffee. I'll get my own, thank you very much. And this is the basis of the rest of the book of Romans. As we, with renewed minds, are being transformed to think about God and God's will differently to the way the world thinks about it. And the first big shift for many of us to see is individuals thinking socially. For at the heart of our world's way of thinking is individual, is individualism, is every man for himself. Now, because we live in Australia in a post-Christian kind of moral malaise, we mouth certain concerns for other people. But when it comes down to it, we are taught that charity begins at home, which is a good thing to be taught if you understand it, but to most Australians it means charity ends at home, which is completely different. We have to look after ourselves in order to be able to look after others, we're told, which comes down to mean just look after yourself. We have to be able to love ourselves in order to be able to love others, we're told, which comes down to mean Just love yourself. Rarely will atheists be as honest as Ayn Rand, who used to teach the importance of just looking after yourself. For Ayn Rand understood as an atheist what leaving Christianity actually meant. Most atheists want to hang on to some Christian value system and teach it even though it's inconsistent with atheism. But the great shift that flows from the mercies of God is that we now are to think about others in a new way. 
and not only think about others, but acts towards them differently. And so Romans 12, 3 to 8, commences with a discussion of gifts. Now, in our Bibles, it's a new paragraph with its own heading, and a whole new topic seems to begin. But that's because the publishers ignore the text that they're publishing in an attempt to help us who cannot read anymore because we were educated by the Department of Education in New South Wales. And so we don't know how to look at words anymore because they involve grammar, which we haven't taught for the last 30 years. So notice the little word that starts verse 3. It's the word for or because. How you can separate one from the other when actually it starts with a conjunction defies grammar, but there we go. Get rid of the heading, cross that out, not in our Bible, in your own Bible, cross it out and make it all one paragraph. For by the grace given to Paul to be an apostle to the nations, here is a bit of grace thinking for you to take on board. Each one is to be thinking with sober judgment about himself. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We're not to think of ourselves as too important or too able. This is the usual problem for people, even those who are down in the dumps kind of persons who who think of themselves as too important. It's a funny way of doing it. It's kind of reverse way of doing it. But they say, well, why does nobody ever notice me? That is a way of thinking yourself very important, isn't it? Because if you thought of yourself as unimportant, the fact that no one noticed you, you wouldn't notice. The fact that you think you're really very important, you get upset that no one pays any attention to you. Mind you, we're not to think of ourselves too lowly either, as if I'm a nobody and of no worth. When God made me in his image and has sent his son to die for me and now indwells me by his spirit and has given me gifts to use, how we're to think about ourselves is with wisdom, We're to wise up, is the Australian colloquialism, so that our self-estimate must be based on reason and sense and understanding and wisdom, not not with a drunkenness, so to speak. And we're to have another perspective, that is faith. For according to the faith that has been measured out to us, we are to think. So look at verse 3, which I haven't read. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has signed him. And fortunately for us, that is explained then in verses 4 to 8, where again it is introduced with a little word, for. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. For by the wisdom from the standpoint of faith, we know, as it says in verse 5, that we though many, are one, one body in Christ. The one body is the church, the bride and body of Christ, so that we are one in Christ Jesus. And as in a human body, which 
while made up of many diverse parts, is still just one body, so the church is one in Christ Jesus, is made up of many diverse parts, many different individuals, but we're one. Singing is a lovely expression of our unity, isn't it? We all contribute our voice, quite diverse voice, some not even in tune voice, some on a different key voice, but we all contribute our voice to make our song together as we teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our unity is like that of the body's unity. Each part is part of the others and the rest. My fingers work in relation to my brain and to my eyes, not in opposition to them, but in harmony with each other. So it is with the members of the body of Christ. That then gives me a standpoint from which to view myself. I'm not a lone individual, separated from everybody else, not needed by anybody, not wanted by anybody, not able to contribute or needing others. That's a false view. I am a social being, part of a body, part of something which is much bigger than myself. And I am a valued and distinct member of that body, not the same as everybody else. In fact, of great value because I am different to those who are in the body with me. Furthermore, I'm not isolated or opposed to others, but I am to work in harmony with the rest, contributing to their needs and shortcoming as they contribute to my needs and my shortcomings. From this perspective, we understand how to use the gifts properly. We have different gifts, and those gifts have been given have been given to be used for the benefits of others. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. For the gifts are not there for self-glory, they're not there for self-gratification, they're not there for self-esteem. It's not that I must pay attention to the fact that I actually happen to be the best pianist here or I am the best host or I am the best reader. They're not given so that I can think about myself in terms of my gifts like that. They're given so that I will use them. Not for storing up, not for hiding, but to use them for the benefits of others. And so they're given for use, but for the proper use. Verse 6 following speaks about the proper use in my service in serving, in my acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now this is the same kind of teaching as you have in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And I know it's a kind of dumb obvious thing to say, but remember that between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, there is 1 Corinthians 13. Obviously, but you know what I mean about 1 Corinthians 13, it's the great chapter on love. It's the great chapter of how we use our gifts. For the really important thing is not the gifts that we have, but how we use them. That's the really important thing. And how we use them is in love for our brothers and sisters because we are members of the one body together. And these gifts have been given not for our own sake, but for the sake of each other. The great teaching of the scriptures is on being other person-centered, giving, not taking. It's all about grace. 
God has generously given us all things that we can be generous with all the things that he has given to us. That we are generous with God's generosity. When we stop thinking about ourselves as we busily serve others, then we discover ourselves. As long as we think about ourselves, we will never find ourselves. Stop thinking about ourselves and do what God has given us to do. Serve others and we discover our true self. It's like love. If you seek it, you'll never find it. If you give it away, it comes back to you overflowingly. But you can't give it in order to get it. You give it because you give it. Because it's been given to you to give. And your gifts have been given to you to give. To serve one another. Now chapter 12 then proceeds talking of loving others. It's not quite as neat as the outline in my book indicates that uh, it's over the page now in the outline, in case you're note-taking, we're up here loving especially the insider and then point five, loving especially the outsider. It's not quite that neat, I'm sorry to say. But verses 9 to 13 is basically, especially talking about loving the fellow Christian, the insider, And 14 to 21 is about loving the outsider, the non-Christian neighbour. So let's look quickly at each of these, especially loving especially the insider in verses 9 to 13. First up then is genuineness in love. Verse 9, let love be genuine, without hypocrisy, without insincerity. Uh, What is this love? It's the, the giving from the heart for the other person's benefit. Secondly, it's about evil and good. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. For love in the Bible is moral. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, we read, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And Romans chapter 13, as we will see in a little while, speaks about love fulfilling the law. And in 2 John 6, we read, that love is walking in accordance with the commandments. In our world's view of love, love has nothing to do with morality. In fact, in the world's view of love, love has to do more with immorality. So they committed adultery because they fell in love. That is completely impossible within the Bible's understanding of love. Adultery is sin and love, love, love always desires what is right. And so what we're told here is abhor evil. Abhor, from which we also get the word abortion, cast out, hate, strongly dislike. It's, it's don't be entertained and titivated by evil, but hate it and hold on to the good, glue to it, cling to it, unite yourself to the good. Don't ever be embarrassed by goodness. One of my children, I won't mention which, because I was about to use the name, but I won't. They listen to these talks later. But one of my children, when aged 12, 11, 6th class, came home very distressed because their friends at the school was calling them a goody-goody. Isn't that a strange thing, to actually be depressed by that? 
God in his wisdom gave the parent a moment of insight. And I said to her, I've now limited it to the daughter, one of the daughters, I said to her, well then, my dear, why don't you choose to be a baddie baddie instead? She immediately thought that was stupid. Coming from a father, what else would you expect? And so decided that she would be a goody-goody after all, if that was the alternative. Do not be embarrassed by goodness. Third, brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Have that deep, unquestioning love of sacrificing for the other. He's not heavy. He's my brother. Fourth, showing honour. Outdo one another, in verse 10, in showing honour. Not that it's a competition, just the opposite. It's more lead the way in showing honour, respecting others, putting them ahead of yourself, uh, rejoicing in their lives, rejoicing in their victories, in their conquests, not being jealous, not being envious, not being a grumbling force of discontent. Fifthly, live with fervour. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be lazy in earnestness, but fervent. Boil in the spirit is the kind of concept. Serve the Lord with the energy that you see in boiling water. We're not to be half-hearted in our service of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in earnest zeal we're to have real fire in the belly. How and why could we be anything other than that? Well, because... We're afraid. We're afraid in this world's culture, in this Australian culture, we're afraid to be called a zealot, an extremist, a fanatic, a fundamentalist, because we're distracted by other things, by pleasures, by hobbies, by possessions, by cares, by worries of the world, like the third soil in the parable. That's why we're afraid to be what the scripture tells us to. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's interesting, of recent times there's been lots of articles about the abuse of alcohol in our community. Nearly every one of those articles which is saying we should somehow limit, reduce, the, the availability of alcohol, the hours of service, the age of drinking, whatever it is, nearly every one of them, the author has to say somewhere in the context, not that I'm a wowser, I enjoy a drink as much as anybody else does. You can't actually write an article which just says, we have a problem here that needs to be fixed. That's not a possibility. We're embarrassed about taking a strong moral line on anything. And we Christians are embarrassed about being zealous. We want to be acceptable, reasonable, balanced, mainstream. And we want to enjoy our own good life rather than serving others. My friends, Sunday school teachers are wonderful creatures to turn up every week for the year to teach little children about the things of God is zeal, is fanaticism, is serving the Lord with energy. So many people today wish to do an occasional thing. If you ever need someone, call upon me. 
rather than actually week in, week out, make our life revolve around our commitments to serving other people. Sixthly, there's genuineness in love. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. How do these things go together? Well, hope is what we don't yet possess. So the sufferings of this world keep our eyes focused on the future glory, Paul has taught us back in chapter 8. We rejoice in it for we value it, unlike Esau who didn't value his birthright, who took it for granted and was not patient in tribulation. But we, like Esau, are very impatient. We want everything now. We want our problems solved immediately, if not yesterday. There's a book that I've never read, which I have on my shelf at home, which says, Praying for Patience Quickly. We want it immediately. That is the character of what we want. We do not want to be constant in prayer. We're fits and starts people, not patiently, consistently prayerful people. Seventh, giving and hospitality. Contribute, verse 13, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. One of Paul's great concerns with the, the Jewish famine that was happening in Palestine at this time And the saints are the Jewish Christians for whom he is collecting money, which became the tribute of the nations to Israel, repaying physically for what they had received spiritually from Israel, the gospel. And so here he speaks of fellowshipping with the saints in their need, sharing with them in their need. And here giving, which is always a virtue, because God loves a cheerful giver, because God himself is a cheerful giver, a generous, gracious God is our God. Here, giving is directed to this particular program of the concern for the saints, the Jewish Christians of Palestine. But he's legally looking for the opportunity to be hospitable. Is that your perception of life? Seeking to show hospitality. But then there's another list of commands in verses 14 to 23. Not exclusively, but the ones in 14 to 23 are mostly about outsiders, loving especially the outsider. Sympathy, which we're actually being taught is a bad thing, is the ability to enter into, to understand and share somebody else's feelings. Professional counsellors might actually be trained in empathy and it's a good thing so that they don't get swallowed up by the other person's experience. But family experience, Christian brotherhood and sisterhood, is actually about sympathy. It's sharing the feelings. It's not just understanding, oh, I understand that you're sad. It's sharing their sadness because you love them and feel with them and for them. Thirdly, is harmony of humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Again, this is not altogether with the outsiders. Uh, The Greek word for harmony is be of the same mind as one another. We translate it harmony. It's not being of a similar voice or singing together harmoniously. It's actually thinking the same way as each other. Again, it's the mind. But then when you have such mind, do not think of yourself highly, but associate with the lowly. See, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. 
we are to be mature in our thinking, in understanding, be men, but in sin, be babies. We, we mustn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to in verse 3, but we are to think. Thinking is very important. And thinking together is important. Not to think that you're the only person who has the truth. And beware of hobnobbing, wanting to talk to the important people. Beware of arguing in order to demonstrate knowledge rather than to inform and to help the other. Beware of listening to the wisdom of the other person, whoever they may be. For remember, out of the mouths of babes and infants come the praises of God. We are so much caught up in professor and doctor and reverend and this one's written books and famous international speak. The word of God is what we need to learn. And but a babe may speak to us more truth from the word of God than one who knows everything and therefore nothing. Fourthly, honourable, not evil, is what we're to be. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. Like verse 14, bless, not retaliate. The alternative to retaliation is to do what is honourable. Francis Bacon wrote a lovely little essay on revenge in which he says to Payback is to reduce yourself to the same level as the other person, but to not pay back makes you a prince amongst men. What is the right thing to do is never lose your temper. Give thought, stop and think. James chapter 1, be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. Which leads to the next, fifthly, be peaceable. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. It's not always possible, is it? But we must be peacemakers, not troublemakers. We mustn't pay, play office politics. We mustn't be involved in the neighbourhood gossip. We mustn't set person against person. We are to be the peacemakers. Rather, sixthly, what we're to do is overcome evil with good. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The theme has been developed from verse 14. We are not to retaliate. What are we to do when people do bad things against us? Let God bring justice. How he will do it, I'll show you in a moment in chapter 13. But here at the end of chapter 12, bless your persecutors. Do good to them. Shame them by your kindness, adding to their final judgment. Overcome their evil by your goodness. But let's return to that little phrase, leaving it to the wrath of God. For that introduces chapter 13 to us, even though it looks like a new chapter, new heading, new paragraph, 
got nothing to do with what goes before. It's a great shame. It's called God's inst- submission to the authorities. I've got it down in the outline here as God's instituted authority for myself. See, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Here is the basis of government. And friends, we're going to be talking more about government as our day goes on. Here is the basis of government, whether the government of the day recognizes it or not. They always rule under the appointment and authority of God, and they will always be answerable to God. They do not rule under the authority of some mythical social compact created by the Enlightenment, nor do they rule under the authority of the people, but they rule because God has appointed them. Even evil and perverted governments is there under the authority of God. Remember, when Paul is writing this, he's not writing it about a just, reasonable, Western, elected, democratic government but he's writing this about the Roman Empire with its terrifying abuse of Christians and its capacity for persecution and its abuse of human rights. It doesn't mean that governments will always do the right thing, nor does it condemn civil disobedience, but we must always remember that governments are there because God has appointed them, instituted them, appointed them to do his work and will be answerable to him for what they do. And notice Christians are not here taught, nor elsewhere in the scriptures taught. They're not commanded to govern, but to be governed. Not to run government, but to submit to government. Not to command government, but to obey government. We in Western democratic Christianized countries such as Australia, we're used to the idea that the government is answerable to us. And we've even Christianized that it's answerable to us. And we will even discuss how we govern. But the Bible is about how we are governed rather than how we govern. The command is to be subject, to submit yourself, to accept the authority, to place yourself under the authority of government. The basic Christian attitude to those placed over us because, we're told why, because God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He has placed any and every authority over us in its place. The tyrant, the dictator, may think that he's come to power by his force of arms, by his clever political alliances, or by his charismatic personality, but it's because... God has appointed him to power. God is working his purposes out even through the wicked, stubborn Pharaoh, even through the evil, corrupt Ahab, even through the pagan Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. God appointed each of those people to bring about his purposes for his people. No authority exists other than that derived from God. The boss at work, the sporting team captain, the policeman, the fireman, the father, all authority comes from God. 
And so God's people have submission as our knee-jerk reaction and response to any or all of the governing authorities. Notice secondly that he is God's servant for your good. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Anarchy is the worst form of government. The rule of the mob is the truly terrifying unjust authority. The breakdown of any government is the worst thing. Do you want to live in Syria? Civil war is the pits. Of all the wars that there are, civil war is the worst war. It's a dreadful war to be caught up into. When there is no government, there is no peace, there is no good. God has appointed government for our benefit and so we should make it easy for governors to govern by submitting to them and doing what is good and right and just and true. And thus we do not fear them for God rules over them and we do not fear them because we are law-abiding citizens who submit to their authority and support them in their cause and their role. But notice the flip side of all this, for the governor is also God's servant for wrath. Verse 4, Romans 13 verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Here then is the answer from the question of verse 12 about not repaying evil for evil, but leaving it to God's wrath. It can refer to the final judgment, and sometimes that's the only place in which you will find justice, in the final judgment, when God comes and repays that which has been done. But it doesn't only refer to the final judgment because God's wrath is at work in the world today. And one of the ways in which God's wrath is at work in the world today is through the governments he's appointed to punish evildoers. This is one of the most important passages in the development of civilization. For we are not to take matters into our own hands. We're not to practice payback. We're not to engage in vendettas. We're not to be involved in feuds. But rather, between the criminal and the victim stands the government. And the government's role is to deliver justice, defending the victim, punishing the criminal. For the, the government is God's government delivering justice and in particular God's wrath upon the criminal. That is, government is more than just social engineering. Atheists don't understand this. They do and they don't. Atheists have nothing more than social engineering. There is no right and wrong. There cannot be any criminal activity. Criminality is being defined as that which there is a law saying that it is criminal. Totally circular. 
If the government says this activity is criminal, it's criminal. If the government doesn't say it's criminal, it's not criminal. So what is criminal? It's what the government says is criminal. It just goes round and round. Mind you, every government says murder is criminal, theft is criminal. There is something that is right and wrong that is beyond social engineering. You see the new eight-year mandatory minimum sentence for the drunk's coward's punch may be bad law. I tend to think all mandatory sentences like that is bad law because it doesn't take into account the individual circumstance that may actually mean that it shouldn't be a sentence like that. Well, that others may disagree with me. I'm more than happy, but I just don't like long mandatory sentences. I know this, though. It's not going to work. It's not going to deter any drunk in his rage from punching somebody. Do you think when somebody is so drunk that they don't know what they're doing in the streets that they're suddenly going to stop punching somebody on the grounds that there's an eight-year mandatory sentence? I mean, it's not going to work as a piece of prevention. It's not going to rehabilitate the drunk. It's not going to protect us from him. That's not what it's there for in the end. Whether they know it or not, what it's there for is an attempt to bring justice. It's an attempt to say... Killing an innocent man in the street because you're so drunk you don't know what you're doing deserves more than a tap on the wrist. It deserves more than a year or two in jail. It actually saying what you're doing is really wrong and should be punished. The government is bringing wrath on the evildoer at this point. There is no other rational explanation other than political opportunism from the present government that can explain why the community would want us to have such a long sentence for this act because we're saying this act is a crime of such nature as deserving being punished. That's what we're doing. So we do not take the law into our own hands but look to God's way of punishing, and God's way of punishing, amongst others, is by his servant, the government, set up to punish evildoers and to bring God's wrath and vengeance to bear. Very important in civilization, isn't it? For if we have to repay the evildoers, chaos will soon reign in our land, won't it? As vengeance runs riot as people take up arms against people. What the Christian's responsibility is can be put in terms of submission and doing good, but also in terms of paying our taxes and respect. So verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. It's not just that we're to obey and submit to the government. It's more than that. It's to respect all in authority who are placed over us. Be it the school teacher or the lollipop person controlling the pedestrian traffic. Be it the parent or the husband or the magistrate in the court. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. Obedience is one form of honour. But praying for them in 1 Timothy 2 is another way of honouring them. Paying taxes, as is mentioned here, is another way of honouring them. 
just as showing respect to your elders or your boss. For this is the Christian debt. We don't owe anybody money, but we owe everybody love. Chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And the debt of love never finishes and has to be paid in fact, not just in theory. As God so loved us, we should love one another. The very sign and symbol of the Christian is not the cross or the dove or the fish or the pointy kind of buildings we may go, gather in. The point, of the, the very character of the Christian is our love for one another. That's how the world will know us as being different. But God's love is not just for his friends. It's also for his enemies. God so loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our love is not only for our fellow believers, but also for those outside the kingdom, even especially for those who oppose us. And so Paul writes here in Romans 13, love fulfills the law. The debt of love fulfills the law. For if you do what the law requires, you will love. And if you love, you will do what the law requires. To John writes, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Some people ignore the law, thinking that love is sufficient. But true love obeys the law. Some people try to fulfill the law without loving others. But true law-keeping, from the changed heart, loves others. You can't love your neighbour and break the law. You can't love and murder him. You can't love and steal from him. You lo can't love and commit adultery with him. You can't love and bear false witness against him. The mercies of God means that we no longer are conformed to this world living as individuals for ourselves, by ourselves, without any reference to anybody else other than the people we want to reference ourselves to. No, no, it means we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our mind to discern the will of God, and the will of God is that we love one another and so fulfill his law, the good and acceptable and perfect law, because we now are living in the Christian time. Chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Isn't that extraordinary? As you rise up to the climax of evil, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, 
It's not where we would put it in a list, is it? At the top of the list. That's not the character of how we think. We think as individuals, I have my rights. You have your rights, but you keep your rights on your side of the fence, I'll keep my rights on my side of the fence. We're being conformed to the world when we think individualistically like that. The world has changed by the mercies of God that we find in the gospel. No longer do we live by the ways of the world, now we are to be transformed into a new way of living. And by that transformation, we're to transform the world as well. And the new way of living is not individualism, but is fundamentally social. So how do we relate to our nation? Is what we're talking about today. Because we're the people with a renewed mind that needs to go on being renewed to think socially, not just individually. So how as we as individual Christians going to think socially? About our church life, yes. About our family life, yes. But about our national life and our government and its relationships with us. Where is Australia going? And where are we as Christians taking it? We must think outside ourselves to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you give us here in the Epistle to Romans. We thank you, Father, for revealing to us through the death and resurrection of your Son that wonderful fulfillment of your law, that love and desire to serve others, even at the sacrifice of ourselves, that other person sentence. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we may have that mind of Christ amongst ourselves, not thinking equality with God is a thing to be grasped but be emptied, to, gi to give ourselves as a servant, even unto death, that we might be like him whom we follow, that we might be like him, he who has died for us and risen again, that we would live for him that we might accept your love for us by loving one another. So help us, Father, this day to think through the social implications of being your people, that we would no longer be conformed to the way this world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to know your will, what is just and true and right. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.